Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We like to think that those who kill will eventually be hunted down, caught and brought to justice. But as we know, that isn't always the case. Some serial killers elude capture for years or even decades. Some are never caught. This episode will list seven serial killers that may still be out there now. Watching their next victim and waiting for the perfect opportunity to strike. Will they ever be caught? Unsolved serial killers on this episode of Mysteriously Listed. Number 7. The Axeman of New Orleans. The first murder occurred in May of 1918 and continued through to October of 1919. To this day, no one has been identified as the Axeman, however numerous leads have been followed. Not all the victims died, but those who weren't were left badly injured. In some of the crimes, the doors to the victims' homes were first bashed open with the same tool that they would be attacked with. This was a case with the first murder, where the door to the house was bashed in with the weapon that was later used to kill the husband and wife who lived there. Some of the earlier victims were of Italian descent, leading many to believe that the killings were mafia-related, but this lead was unfounded due to the fact that future killings didn't meet the previous criteria. One of the victims was a pregnant woman, while another a baby that was killed in his mother's arms. Playing off Jack the Ripper, the Axeman started contacting the newspapers. He would send letters taunting them. These letters would hint of future crimes, and he claimed to be straight from hell, a demon of sorts. Most notoriously, on March 13th, 1919, A letter from someone claiming to be the Axeman was published in newspapers saying that he would kill again at 15 minutes past midnight on the night of March 19th. But anyone playing jazz music would be spared. That night, all the dance halls in New Orleans were filled to capacity and all jazz bands would play at parties across hundreds of homes in the area. There were no murders that night. Even though the Axeman was never caught, crime writer Colin Wilson, he speculates the Axeman could have been Joseph Mumphy. Mumphy was a man who was shot to death in Los Angeles in 1920 by the widow of the last known victim of the Axeman. She served only three years for the murder and claimed to recognise Mumphy as the man she saw fleeing her home the night she discovered her husband's body. Colin Wilson also notes that Mumphy was in jail during all the Axeman's dormant periods, and he was free during times of the murders. 
Number 6. The Rapid Creek Murders On May 21, 1998, the police in Rapid City, South Dakota, were called to Rapid Creek, just outside the Black Hills National Park. A body was found half upright in the creek. He would later be identified as 36-year-old Ben Longwolf. His blood alcohol level was tested, and it was determined that he was drunk when he was drowned. Because of this, his death was ruled to be an accidental drowning after he drank too much and passed out in the waters. Ten days later, the body of 56-year-old George Hatton was also found in Rapid Creek. Just like Long Wolf, George was found with a high blood alcohol and was determined to have drowned due to intoxication. Six weeks later, and Rapid Creek was celebrating Independence Day. On this day, 42-year-old Alan Howe was found drowned in the creek. There was no more drownings for six months, and then in December of 1998, 48-year-old Randall Tucrow was found in the creek. And just the next day, the body of 33-year-old Lauren Tubles was also found. Again, the drownings would stop for six months. That was until May 29, 1999. 44-year-old Dirk Bartling would be the fifth man to be found drowned in Rapid Creek. On June 7th, the body of 45-year-old Arthur Chamberlain would also be found. And finally, the body of 47-year-old Timothy Bullbear, he would be pulled from the creek. At this point, with so many deaths in such a small area, the police weren't sure if the eight homeless men met with foul play or if it was a case of eight separate accidents. This seemed to be the likely scenario, as there was no outward signs of a struggle and all of the men were intoxicated with their blood alcohol levels checked post-mortem. But then again... What are the odds that so many homeless men of Indian heritage would be found drowned within an 18-month time span in the same area? Local advocacy groups believe that the deaths were too much of a coincidence and they are calling for the deaths to be fully investigated as they believe it wasn't initially due to the men's backgrounds. 5. The Connecticut River Killer During the mid-1980s, a suspected killer murdered at least six women along the New Hampshire-Vermont border. The suspect attacked the women in the Connecticut Valley River near Route 91 in both Vermont and New Hampshire. Kathy Milliken was the first victim and she was found murdered in New London, New Hampshire, on October 24, 1978. 
Less than three weeks later, on August 9th, the next victim, Mary Elizabeth Kreitchi, was also murdered. Then Bernice Courtmarch, a 17-year-old nurse's aide, she went missing on May 30th, 1984, in West Claremont, New Hampshire. It was believed that she was abducted while hitchhiking to her boyfriend's home. Her remains wouldn't be found until almost two years later, on April 9th, 1986. Another nurse, Ellen Fried, she would vanish after calling her sister from a payphone in West Claremont on July 20th, 1984. Her remains were found close to where Bernice's was in Kellyville on September 19th, 1985. Eva Morse, a single mother, was hitchhiking from work in Charleston, New Hampshire, when she disappeared on July 10th, 1985. A logger would find her remains on April 25th the following year. The killer then changed his MO with his next victim. On May 15th, 1986, Linda Moore was killed during a home invasion in Saxton's River, Vermont. And finally, 36-year-old Barbara Anew went missing for two months before being found dead in Heartland, Vermont, on March 26, 1987. Not only had all of these women been murdered in the same geographical area, but they were all killed by having their throats slit. At around midnight on April 6, 1988, Jane Broski, who was eight and a half months pregnant at the time, Jane was returning from a county fair when she stopped at a soda machine next to a market in Winchester, New Hampshire. After returning to her car with her drink in hand, a man appeared next to her car door, asking about a phone. He then opened her car door and began to attack her. He pulled a knife and claimed that she had hurt his girlfriend. She denied that this was the case, but it didn't matter. She tried to run, but he chased her and stabbed her 27 times. After stabbing her, the attacker got into his car and left her to die. Jane crawled back into her car and managed to drive two miles to a friend's home. A disturbing fact here is during this drive, Jane would be behind her attacker's car the entire trip. When she got to her friend's home, her attacker stopped his car for a moment before driving away. Fortunately, Jane and her unborn baby survived. Police tried to get Jane to recall the man and get a description of his car. She believed that the car was a mid-1970s to mid-1980s Jeep Wagoneer and that the licence plate had the numbers 662. Investigators were able to narrow down the cars to around 350. However, they were unable to find their killer. Police have indicated that one of their suspects, Michael Nicolou, a former Army helicopter pilot from the Vietnam War, matches the physical description of the person who attacked Jane. However, Nicolou suicided in Florida in 2005 after he murdered his wife and stepdaughter. During the time of the murders, Nicolou lived in Massachusetts. However, his wife had relatives living in Vermont. 
He's also believed to be responsible for the murder of his first wife, Michelle Ashley. Police have had trouble linking Michael Nicolou to the killings, as there have been no evidence other than Jane's description to tie him to the case. DNA testing in the case has been inconclusive. Police have looked into at least two other suspects in the case. One was Delbert Tallman, who confessed to killing a woman named Heidi Martin in 1984. Her death was similar to the Connecticut River murders. However, he recanted this confession and was acquitted of her murder. He has never been officially connected to any other cases. Another suspect is Gary Westover, who confessed to being involved in the murder of Barbara Anew, the final Connecticut River victim. He claimed that he and three other men had abducted and murdered Barbara. However, he died shortly after this confession. It is unknown if he was actually responsible or involved in the other murders. To this date, the Connecticut River murders remain unsolved. Number 4. The Oakland County Child Killer On February 15, 1976, 12-year-old Mark Stebbins left the American Legion in Ferndale, Michigan. He called his mother and told her he was going home to watch TV. As it got darker, Mark's mother became alarmed because he didn't make it home. She called the police Mark's body was found four days later, on February 19th, near a shopping centre. His cause of death was ruled to be due to suffocation. The medical examiner also determined that Mark only died 36 hours before he was found, meaning that the killer would have kept him captive for a few days before killing him. While he was held captive, Mark had been fed, washed and his clothes had been cleaned. During his captivity, he had been bound with rope and had been raped. The case quickly went cold until another murder shook the area. Three days before Christmas 1976, 12-year-old Jill Robinson got into an argument with her mother over dinner preparations. Jill decided she was running away, so she packed up some of her belongings, took her bike and then vanished. Christmas came and went without any sign of Jill, while her family desperately searched for her. On December 26th, Jill's body was found near a ditch near the interstate. The top of her skull had been blown off with a shotgun. She'd only been dead a few hours, murdered in the same spot where she was found. Like Mark, Jill had been fed and washed in the days following her abduction. But unlike Mark, she had not been sexually assaulted. A week after Jill was found, 10-year-old Christine Millick disappeared after buying a magazine from the 7-Eleven store in Berkeley. Her body was found 19 days later in a snow-covered ditch in Franklin Village. Like the other victims, She had not been dead very long, with the medical examiner estimating her death being 24 hours before her discovery. She had been suffocated, but there were no signs of sexual assault. 
the three murders led to widespread panic throughout Oakland County. Parents did not let their children out of their sights. Sadly, the Oakland County child killer would claim one more victim. On March 16, 1977, 11-year-old Timothy King disappeared after leaving a pharmacy only three blocks from his family's home. Just before he went missing, Timothy was seen talking to a man with shaggy hair who was driving a blue AMC Gremlin with a white side strip. When Timothy was missing, his parents would appear on the news media, begging for their son's safe return. They promised that when he came home, he would get his favourite food, which was Kentucky Fried Chicken. Sadly, this would never happen. His body would be found March 22nd in a shallow ditch. Like the other victims, he'd been suffocated, and like Mark, he had been sexually assaulted. Also, just like the other victims, Timothy had been washed and fed. In his stomach, there was fried chicken, which suggested to police that the killer had watched the news coverage of the kidnapping. Then suddenly, after 13 months of terror, the murders came to an end. According to the local media, there have been hundreds of suspects over the years, but only a few of them have been promising. The first of these is Archibald Edward Sloan. Sloan was a convicted pedophile who lived in the area when the children went missing. In his car, which was a 1966 Bonneville, police found hair that had the same mitochondrial DNA as some strands of hair that was found in the bodies of both Mark and Timothy. A mitochondrial DNA match means that the hair either belongs to the killer or a relative on his mother's side. The hair does not belong to Sloan, so the police think that Sloan allowed someone to borrow the car and this person may be involved in the murders. Another suspect in the case is convicted pedophile Chris Bush. Bush would never be questioned about the murders because he suicide by gunshot in November 1978. Police searched his home and found pieces of rope covered in blood and the drawing of a young man tied up in a sexual manner. The family of Mark Stebbins immediately noticed the similarities between the drawing and their son. Unfortunately, the ropes were lost before they could be tested, so it's unclear if Bush was involved in the murders or not. The third suspect that is mentioned as being possibly the Oakland County child killer was actually a victim of Chris Bush. When James Vincent Gunnels was a teenager, he was raped several times by Bush, who would be later convicted of these rapes. On the sweater of the third victim, Christine, the police found mitochondrial DNA that matched Gunnels. The police do not think that Gunnels is the killer, but do think that he was involved in the abductions. Gunnels took two polygraphs in relation to the four murders. He attempted to cheat the first one, and he failed the second one. Even though Gunnels failed the polygraph test, he has denied being involved in the murders. The final suspect is Theodore Lamborghini, who lived in the area at the time of the murders. He was also a convicted pedophile. In 2007, Lamborghini was arrested for 15 sex-related counts involving young boys dating back to the 1970s and 1980s. 
He would take a polygraph test about the Oakland County child killings, which he failed. Just before his trial, he was given an option for a plea deal. If he would take a second polygraph about the four murders, he would be given 15 years in prison. Alternatively, if he refused the second polygraph, he would get the maximum penalty, which was several life sentences. Interestingly, Lamborghini chose the latter option. Theodore Lamborghini is currently serving these life sentences and is unlikely to ever be released. The families of the four victims are hopeful that one day the real killer can be positively identified, so they may get closure and justice may be served. Number three. Jack the Butcher. Belize is a small Central American country wedged between Mexico and Guatemala. Belize is not known for its violence outside the drug trade, so when a serial killer began operating in late 1990s, the Belize police quickly realised that they were in over their heads. On September 8, 1998, 13-year-old Shirley Nicholas disappeared on her way to school in Belize City. Her body would be discovered a month later in a ditch of a highway. She'd been sexually assaulted and stabbed more than 40 times. Two days before Shirley's body was discovered, nine-year-old Joy Blades vanished from Belize City and her body would not be found until almost six months later. However, the police could sense a link between the two murders. Some of the clothes that Joy was wearing was also found on Shirley. On May 22, 1999, Jackie Fern Malik vanished during recess at St. Ignatius School in Belize City. This is the same school that Shirley was walking to when she disappeared. Jackie's body was found two days later. She was covered in stab wounds and her arm had been severed. During the autopsy, the coroner made note in her report that the wounds to Jackie and Shirley were almost identical. That the wounds to Jackie and Shirley were almost identical. Add on to that, Joy's murder and the fact that Shirley's backpack was found next to her the police were forced to confront a fact that they were unprepared to handle, that Belize had their first serial killer. Belize City had no experience with such a series of murders. They lacked the basic forensic facilities. They had no way of testing semen, blood, bone or even fibres. So they did all they knew. They would arrest someone, anyone, to try and calm the rising panic within the city. 40-year-old mechanic Mark Williams was arrested shortly after Jackie's murder on the basis that he had once offered her a ride to school, but she had turned down the offer. However, after he was arrested, another girl went missing and was discovered murdered. Nine-year-old Erica Wills had also been stabbed multiple times. This didn't deter the police, though they continued to arrest random people based on little or no evidence. They also implemented a curfew and the streets had an increase of police and military presence. 
Belize requested the assistance of the FBI to help them process the growing amount of forensic evidence from the murders. There were rumours at the time that Scotland Yard was also involved in the investigation. Contemporary news articles reported on a daily basis that the killer would be caught any day now, that the police were constantly closing in on their suspect and that any delays were for reasons outside their control, like the FBI being too slow with processing the DNA results. On February 15, 2000, 14-year-old Naomi Hernandez would be the fourth child to disappear. Naomi, like the other girls, she was a student of St Ignatius School. Nine days after she was last seen, Naomi was found with stab wounds in the Burleys River. She had been decapitated and her left arm was missing, as it was with Jackie. These represented the five murders that the police believed were victims of Jack the Butcher. Apart from the connection to the school that three of the four victims attended, the violence down to the bodies, the missing arms in two cases, the signs of sexual assault, there were reports that several of the girls had expensive products shortly before their disappearance, a fact that does not go unnoticed in a poor country. This suggests that the killer may have developed a relationship with the victims before abducting them. What is unknown is why a number of other murders of schoolgirls aren't included in the victim count. They all went missing in the same area and were found with injuries that were eerily similar to the five confirmed Jack the Butcher victims. The police are forthcoming with that fact they had little physical evidence and no way of processing it. 15-year-old Samantha Gordon was found naked with her back and knees covered with cuts on November 8, 1998. 13-year-old Becky Gilharry was found dead on the grounds of the Santa Rita Mayan ruin around the same time of Jackie's disappearance just outside the city. And 10-year-old Karen Cruz was killed in a town just north of the city in June of 1999. This is in addition to a number of attempted abductions that occurred around this time, including one that happened just after the discovery of the last victim in 2000. The murders ended then, though. On March 5th, 2000, it was reported that an arrest was imminent for Naomi Hernandez's murder. However, nothing came of this. Apart from an $100,000 reward offered in 2008 by a local news channel, the case has gone cold. Jack the Butcher remains at large to this day. Number 2. The I-70 Killer On April 8, 1992, 26-year-old Robin Fordner was working alone at the Payless Shoe Store in Indianapolis, Indiana. Sometime between 1.30 and 2pm, a man walked into the store and forced Robin into the back room. He told her to get on her knees and shot her once in the back of the head at close range. After killing her, he took some money out of the register and left the store. 
three days later, around 670 miles west of Indianapolis, just off Interstate 70. 32-year-old Patricia Magers was working in a bridal shop that she owned in Wichita, Kansas, along with her employee, 23-year-old Patricia Smith. Like the first victim, they were both shot in the head and found in the back room of the store. On April 27, 1992, 16 days after the last murders, 40-year-old Michael McCowan was found shot once in the back of the head in a ceramic store that his mother owned in Terry Horte, Indiana, which was also on the I-70 route. Investigators would later speculate that it is possible that the killer thought that Michael was his mother or another female employee. He may have had his back turned on the killer, who would only have seen his hair in a ponytail. Michael would be the only male victim of the I-70 killer. Less than a week after Michael's murder, on May 3, 1992, in St Charles, Missouri, which is between Indianapolis and Wichita along the I-70, 24-year-old Nancy Kitzmiller was working alone in a boot shop. She was shot and killed just like the other four victims, by a single gunshot to the back of the head at close range. And like the other victims, her body was also found at the back of the store. The I-70's final confirmed victim was on May 7, 1992 in Raytown, Missouri. 37-year-old Sarah Blessing was working alone at a gift shop. She was found in the back room with a gunshot wound to the back of her head. After Sarah's murder, the killings along the I-70 stopped, less than a month after they began. Even though the murders took place in three different states, the police knew they were all connected, mainly because they were all shootings of the same style with the same weapon. All the victims were found in the back room of the store, and all occurred on or near the I-70. Despite Michael, all the victims were petite brunette females and this gave investigators some insight onto how he chose his victims. They believed that he had scouted the victims first and watched them from a distance. Since the murders took place in broad daylight in commercial areas, there were witnesses who saw the shooter. He was described as being a white man between the ages of 22 and 32. He was thin and between 5 foot 7 and 5 foot 9, with sandy blonde or reddish hair. Some investigators believe the I-70 killer did not stop his killing spree in May of 1992. They believe that he is also responsible for several shootings in Texas in 1993 and 1994. On September 25, 1993, 51-year-old Mary Ann Glasscock was working alone in the Emporium Antique Store in Fort Worth, Texas. She was shot and killed at close range. About a month later, on November 1, 1993, 22-year-old Amy Vess was killed in a similar fashion inside the Dancer's Closet Apparel Store in Arlington. And then on January 15, 1994, 
35-year-old Vicky Webb was shot at a Houston gift store. A thin man, around 5 foot 8 with light hair, came into the store. The man talked to her for a few minutes and said that his niece would like the store. He asked Vicky if he could see a copper frame that was hanging on the wall of the store. When she turned around to grab it, the man pulled out a gun and shot her in the back of the neck. Incredibly, Vicky survived the attack. One of the reasons that it is speculated that maybe the two sets of shootings are connected is because all three victims in the Texas shootings were petite women with dark hair who worked in retail stores alone, the same as those in the I-70 shootings. The Texas shootings were also on or near Interstate 35, which is just south of Wichita, Kansas, where the second I-70 murder happened. One important difference, though, between the two sets of murders is that different guns were used. However, it is worth noting that the Texas shootings were all the same gun, which could just mean the killer changed guns between the first set of shootings and the second. When Vicky was shown a sketch of the I-70 shooter suspect, she said that the man looked like the same person who shot her. Unfortunately, the police have not been able to identify this man and he could still be killing. If he is still alive today, he would be in his mid-50s. Number 1. The Phantom Killer Just before midnight on February 22, 1946, 24-year-old Jimmy Hollis and his girlfriend, 19-year-old Mary Janine Larry, were parked in a secluded corner on an isolated road just off Richmond Road in Texicana. Suddenly a man wearing a white cloth mask, presumed to be a white pillowcase with eye holes cut out, appeared at the car window and shone a flashlight at the couple. The man then pointed a gun at them and ordered them out of the car. The man then had Jimmy remove his pants before hitting him in the head so hard that his skull would be fractured in three different places. The man then told Mary to run, which she did, only for him to chase her. He caught the scared woman and then raped her violently. Thankfully, Mary did manage to get away from her attacker and get help. Jimmy was found clinging to life, and he also survived the attack. Only one month later, on March 24th, 29-year-old Richard Griffin and his girlfriend, 17-year-old Polly Ann Moore, were found shot to death in their car on another isolated road. Richard was in the front seat and had been shot twice, while Polly Ann was in the back seat of the car. She had been raped and then shot in the head. Police found a bloody patch of land nearby, which suggested that the couple had been shot outside the car and then positioned back in the car before the killer made his getaway. Recent rain had washed away any evidence that may have been there, except for several 32 calibre slugs. It had only been three weeks before the phantom killer would strike again. Yet another couple would be attacked while parked in an isolated area. 
This time, the victims were 15-year-olds Betty Jo Booker and 16-year-old Paul Martin. They had been shot multiple times and their bodies were found just a few miles away from Paul's car. At this point, the town was in full panic and Texas Rangers were brought in. Gun sales went through the roof. A voluntary curfew was put in place and businesses closed early. No one wanted to be outside after dark because of fear of becoming the phantom killer's next victim. Citizens raised thousands of dollars, which would be offered to whoever could provide information that could lead to the arrest of the killer. On the night of May 3rd, 1946, 37-year-old Virgil Sparks and his wife, 36-year-old Katie Sparks, were sitting at home listening to the radio when someone fired two shots through their closed living room window and into the back of Virgil's head. Katie would be shot twice in the face only moments later. Incredibly, she survived the shots and managed to make it to a neighbour's home who alerted the police. An investigation of the scene turned up a flashlight and unidentified bloody footprints. Despite the fact that a different gun being used in the MO changing, police announced that the Sparks were also victim of the Phantom Killer. Following the Sparks murders, the murders stopped and the killer never struck again. In total, the Phantom Killer would have killed five people and injured three more in the space of only ten weeks. His identity to this day remains a mystery. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.